So <clears throat> tonight I want to weave a few strands together and uh, talk a bit about love and about a uh, little bit about karma and about healing. So from the outside for a sort of someone who's who's new to practice, new new to meditation, etc. Um, or someone who has sort of read a little bit but not really started. And if they would hear a little bit uh, you know, about emptiness and the kind of things that we've been talking about, it would be very understandable for them to really, if they had a sense, was, well, does th- would that bring about love? Would that lead to love? It sounds, it's very easy for the mind to get hold of it and go very quickly to the, the extreme of nihilism. The kind of what's being said here is nothing exists, nothing matters. Very, very common, even for practitioners. And so it, it might not seem at all obvious that these practices and, and understanding emptiness and going deeper in this way leads to love, that that, that would be an outcome of it. But you know, time and time again, the testaments of, of uh, practitioners and uh, that actually it does. It really, really does. Uh, there is uh, an inescapable movement towards a, a deepening of love as you go deeper in the understanding of emptiness. So just to pull, I mean, one quote could have pulled many out. Kiense Rinpoche, one of the great uh, Zogchen teachers of the last century, I'm not sure when he died, it wasn't that long ago, uh, says, When you realize the empty nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Lovely. And so this is what I want to, part of what I want to explore tonight. And when he's saying the emptiness of phenomena, he means both the emptiness of self, the lack of inherent existence of, of the self uh, and other selves, but also all phenomena. This is somehow all, all part of uh, opening up the, the doors of love in the heart. And you could say, and I, I, you could say, if, if as a human being I want to live a life, I want to grow in my life towards uh, serving love, to living a life that is in the service of love, if I want that, and if I want that deeply, then understanding emptiness, realizing emptiness, questioning about emptiness is probably going to have quite a big part in that, or at least to say enormous amount of help that it can provide a support for a life that really wants that, that really wants to uh, have that aspiration and wants to live out that aspiration. Immensely significant. So let's look at this. Let's go back again to basics, where we started really with the retreat. What do we see when the clinging gets less? What do we see when the clinging gets less? Well, one of the first things we noticed was that the self-sense gets less. Yeah, We went through this... Cling, cling less, self-sense gets less. In the self-sense uh, becoming less, less built up, less solid, less exaggerated, um, what also gets less? Well, the sense of separation. Self and other, again, form another kind of duality. There's a self in relationship to the rest of the universe, in relationship to other selves. So as the self-sense gets less through less clinging, the sense of separateness from other also begins to, to quiet, to become lighter in the consciousness. 
And with that comes love. I mean, you could actually say that one aspect of love is actually a sense of less separation or a feeling of less separation. So there's a very, uh, what should be, what can be, a very clear um, connection, a very, very clear connection. And our job as practice, part of our job as practitioners is to see that and see it over and over again and to feed that and feed it in the practice by letting go of the clinging, seeing the self-sense die down, seeing the separation die down, and see the heart open up over and over and get very, very clear about that and, and nourish that, that movement and that process. And actually, I just wanted to drop in something that came, I think, in the question and answer period the other day. And a couple of people were saying, well, sometimes when I do that, actually what I end up feeling is kind of blah and a bit disconnected. So I just not taking anything at all um, from what was exchanged in the interaction or, or what I uh, said then, which I actually can't remember what it was now, but anyway. Um, and one other little piece. It's possible, I thought about it afterwards, it's possible that sometimes that sense of blahness and disconnection actually is more a matter of kind of effort and intensity levels. Going back to right what I said at the beginning, working with samadhi, etc., that sometimes we're too intense in the practice, too efforting, and it's almost like there's a real sense of, um, well, it's not good or bad, but there's a real sense of sharpness in there as part of the effort and intensity. And it may be, at times, this is quite a subtle point, but it may be that, that we actually need more sharpness, more effort, more intensity at a time to bring uh, the blood, to convert the blindness into a sense of aliveness and connection, or at other times we actually need less. So it's not obvious what we need, but that might be a factor. Does, does that make sense? So uh, it can be something quite small like that, like just needing to sharpen the focus, and then the sense of disconnection comes, uh, comes um, quiets, and, and we feel more connected. So when you were working with all these practices and these insight practices, whether it's anatta or, or whatever it is, and relaxing relationship or looking at things as empty or whatever, you can be quite intense about it. There's a real sense of the, pre- the present moment. You've got it right there in the consciousness, right in front, and, and you're quite intense in, in the lens that you're using. It's not me, not mine. It's very intense, which is fine and lovely. And at other times, it's much more spacious and relaxed sense. It's just kind of opening up and resting in this lens of, it's just not me, not mine, or just, just relaxing the relationship, or just letting it be part of the spacious awareness, all the different things we talked about. But just like samadhi practice, you can be intense or you can be restful within the samadhi, and it's part of being aware of the effort levels and the intensity levels. Same thing with insight practice. So really, really <laughs> helpful to be aware of that, because dependent on that different you know, constellations in, in the energy system and the consciousness will come about or not. And sometimes uh, what we need is actually to drop the emptiness practice and to just, in terms of this disconnection piece, and just go to a very simple mindfulness practice, just being present and being with and connecting in that way, not trying to do anything sophisticated in terms of emptiness, and just meeting the experience and being there. And in that, a, a connection uh, can re-establish itself. So whatever is going on, can I just open to it? Can I just be with it? And not all the time trying to do something kind of uh, clever and fiddly with the experience. So that simple practice of mindfulness, of meeting the experience and just connecting, we never lose that as practitioners. It's never something we ever leave behind. 
We're always going to keep that. Always going to keep it as an as an option. <clears throat> so, what else? When we're practicing love and compassion, um, it's actually very possible. We're not going to talk too much about this because it's actually not a love and compassion retreat. But it's actually very possible to bring a lot of these emptiness approaches and lenses into the practice of uh, metta or karuna love or compassion. So just in the most simple way, how often, if you do metta practice, have you sat there feeling pretty bad in one way or another, feeling not very well either physically, there's an illness, there's an energy blockage, there's a headache, there's a pain, or some kind of sadness or something going on. This is just the normal part of the waves of, of life. But there's something about an attitude in the meta practice that can be really helpful, and it's just kind of, it's not about me. It's just not about me. I can sit here and feel ill and crappy, and it's just, it's not about me. One lets go of that, uh, what's actually a kind of contraction of self-interest. And you see, actually the meta practice is about other people. One just gives it away, gives it away. And it's not about how I'm feeling. So in a way, the self-sense and how the self feels at any time, o- over time with practice, we realize it's actually not so important. Now usually, for an untrained mind, the self-sense is at the center of everything. How I feel is at the center of everything. With practice, what should happen is we just see it's just the self-sense. <coughs> It's just the self-sense, and it gets stronger, and it gets less, and all that's a dependent arising, and it's just that, and it's not that significant, and it doesn't always have to be the center stage. So we can kind of um, nourish that attitude in practice. As one of my teachers used to say, it's just like a storm in a teacup, all this self-stuff. It's just a storm in a teacup. Now, I'm going to qualify that, but because I'm, I'm kind of assuming that we know how to uh, be with ourselves in a caring way. We know how to hold ourselves, hold our difficult experience, meet it with mindfulness, meet it with care. So that statement about letting go of the self-interest it kind of uh, rests upon the assumption that we know how to take care of the self. We know how to meet our needs and get our needs met. Okay? And right going back to one of the beginning talks, again, it's a matter of picking up different approaches and different views at different times. So sometimes the language of me and what I need and what I'm going through is really, really important. And other times it's like, it's not. It's not, and one just lets it go because it's just the self-sense. It's just the self-sense, it's just a perception of something which is actually empty. So sometimes in practice, and in meta-practice, compassion practice, but in any practice really, one kind of has to have the attitude of being, a, you know, almost like imagining yourself as a hero or heroine. You know, so I feel really, I feel really bad. It's like, okay... In steps the, you know, someone was saying Wonder Woman or Superman. In, in steps the hero and use the imagination, actually. What would it be to be a bodhisattva? I don't, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I just throw it away. I give it away. I give it away. I'm not talking about unhealthy codependency, etc. As I said, I'm just assuming that piece is there and it's okay. 
But after we're able to do that, what, what about this? Just, it doesn't matter how I feel. And the same, one starts on the cushion, but in a way it applies in life. One's engaged in service or giving in some respect, and it just doesn't matter how I feel. Just throwing it away. And somehow using the imagination at times in practice, and actually, like I said, I don't know what talk it was, but the malleability of the story and how the Buddha actually framed himself as a hero to himself and to others. Why can't, why can't we do the same? So we can actually be, you know, the hero, the heroine, the bodhisattva, right there on the cushion when it feels really bad. Something about engaging the creative imagination of the spiritual journey. Very powerful. And we, and we throw away, we throw away self-concern. In a way, we throw away the aggregates. We throw away the aggregates that we take ourselves to be. To me, there's something so beautiful in that, 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 that throwing away. You know, like in the, at the end of the evening in here, and come for the late sitting, and uh, you know, we do the dedication of merit. In a way, it's a similar thing. It's like all this effort, all this trying, really trying for the samadhi, really trying for understanding and everything, and then you just throw it away. You just throw it away. So in my... Um, uh, I've feels like, to me, I've spent quite a lot of time on retreat not being in very good health, in you know, different sort of states of not such great health. And again, using the creative imagination at times, and, and I remember here, actually, when, when I started doing it, so feeling really not very well at all. And then just using the imagination to say, okay, let's imagine that right here I'm on my death, uh, you know, on death's door. And, and what is it then in that moment? It's like a kind of anatta practice, just throwing back the aggregates, giving back the aggregates to the universe. They're not me. This body is not me. It's not mine. And I just give it back to the universe. It, just before stepping over that threshold into death. Just, just just, give it back. Give back the consciousness. Give back the thoughts. Give back the emotions. Give back the feeling crappy. Give back the feeling good. Give it all away. Give it all away. The Buddha has this word, patimisaga, uh, I think it is in Pali. It means this kind of throwing back or giving back, releasing, relinquishing. Uh, giving the aggregates back to the universe, because they're not mine, actually. There's something in the sort of magic and mystery of practice begins to unfurl and unfold over time. And we, most people, not everyone, not everyone, but a lot of people quite normally and understandably begin practice with the sense of what can I get for me. I think a person practicing truly, practicing with dedication, at some point that begins to morph and shift and it's not just for me anymore it's really not and one absolutely genuinely has the feeling that one's sitting down and walking etc for the sake of all beings something happens in the heart kind of it breaks it open and uh, to me we we need to encourage that but we it's also a natural movement as practice deepens So again, not to talk too much about metta and compassion practice, but it's quite possible, it's quite possible that one gets skilled enough uh, in these kind of practices of seeing things as not me, not mine, or in um, other practices, that you can actually bring them in and mix them with a loving-kindness practice or a compassion practice. So here I am, sitting or walking, and may you be well, 
but at the same time having a sense of all this is not me, not mine. And it, it because of the less self at that time, it really deepens the uh, the metta and the compassion practices. So, you know, we say that, well, that sounds really complicated and sophisticated. It is developable, put it that way. It's definitely possible. Or similarly with the chariot and the sense of <clears throat> the self-lacking inherent existence and then taking that sense a little bit of less inherent existence and using it as the kind of center of the love that's going out, Use, or rather putting, putting that in the mix of the love. And it's a whole, uh, kind of the whole thing can go to another level. So that might sound far-fetched, but it's, it's just, it's not, uh, for, for a person that takes the time to develop these practices. So I'm just throwing that out, not that anyone uh, needs to develop that on this retreat at all, but I'm throwing out, because I know one or two people will probably pick that up, if not on this retreat, uh, certainly at another time in their life. So it's interesting, when we think about this relationship of compassion and love and, and, and the self and emptiness, most, most human beings, uh, the general kind of way of thinking about or feeling about compassion, it's not, not even a thought necessarily, is seeing it as, and feeling it as a kind of burden and a sacrifice. So we feel, when we open the heart and the eyes open to the enormity of the suffering in the world, very easy to feel like, whoa, I'm supposed to kind of hold that in some, in some degree. And we might really aspire to it, but as long as we have that sense of the self holding it, it's going to feel like a sacrifice and it's going to feel like a burden. And there's going to be real, a real, real felt sense of limitation uh, and, and boundary to, to how expansive and full our compassion can be. So this is something, even if we're not conscious of it as a thought, it, it will probably be there, and it's something we need to kind of explore and, and pull apart a little bit. So we would tend to think of, of compassion as, as, as a burden. But what if we think of a life of non-compassion, of lack of compassion? To me, that's actually that would be a life of suffering. There's a kind of suffering involved in, in, in the heart not opening, not melting. That, that, that kind of uh, insularness and self-protectionism and separation is a life of suffering. It's not the compassion that brings suffering, it's the opposite. We're, we'd actually be imprisoned, not with the burden of other people's suffering, but we're imprisoned by our own self-interest. It's our self-interest, it's, again, it's counterintuitive. It's our self-interest that imprisons us in life. So this attitude of self-centeredness, automatically, it can't help but eventually lead to suffering. It can't, I mean, we might get short-term gains by being self-centered, but eventually, automatically, it just moves in the direction of suffering, either in the present or setting it up in the future in different ways. And, and again, this is something we want to get really, really clear about, because the knee-jerk reaction is self-centeredness and self-protection. That's just part of the human condition. But to be really, really sure about where the suffering is and where it comes from. It comes from self-centeredness. The release of that self-centeredness actually allows the freeing.
And I remember years ago, one teacher saying, it feels like we're kind of, if we're going to serve and be compassionate, well, we're actually sacrificing the self somehow. But then he said, well, actually, if the self doesn't inherently exist, if the self is a bit of an illusion, how can you sacrifice something that's just an illusion? So this, this, this delusion is going to be very deeply entwined in consciousness, and it's, it's our job as practitioners to, to expose it as an untruth. Hard work, but we, we want to ex- break that open, because it's a, it's a totally upside-down way of seeing. It's totally reverse of the, of the truth. So if um, in the development of love and compassion I, I also need to be um, interested in, in releasing the opposites, so releasing when I'm angry, when I'm tight, when I'm irritable, when I'm judging. Now we already talked in one of the talks, I think it was the chariot talk, about who exactly am I angry with? So to me that's a really, really helpful practice. Like go through... Am I angry at this part of the body, or am I angry at that thought, or am I angry at that intention, or that knowing, that consciousness, or that that vedana, that perception? What exactly? Really go into it in a way, piece by piece, that you feel that actually there's nothing there that I can really be angry with. So we have, uh, it's almost like the the the. the, the eyesight of a human being is often, not all the time, but often programmed to see differences and separation. And in a way, when that's the case, we want to re-educate the seeing to begin to see commonalities. Commonalities, what we share in common, instead of just being, again, mesmerized and, and, and sucked into noticing differences. Actually, it's not just it's not differences per se that are a problem. I remember being in the, in a class in in Boston, and um, I can't remember exactly. There was a homework, and and it was like um, it was something about noticing other people's bodies or something. We had to go through the week and just notice everyone's bodies, and about half the class came back and said, "Wow, isn't it amazing? It's like basically everyone's body is pretty much." the same, like we all have ears and we all have noses and da 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 and the other half of, came back saying God, it's amazing, Every, everyone's is so so particularly unique in this, this amazing diversity and something about actually holding both of them but the important thing is is the way we're seeing leading to appreciation and love or is it leading to a sense of separation and difference so now that you can actually take this anatta practice and direct it towards another. So we, we look at, I look at my aggregates and I see them as not me, not mine. What about sitting opposite someone, uh, particularly if you're having a problem with them, particularly if there's judgment or some kind of irritability or aversion or whatever it is, and you don't have to tell them you're doing this, but um, <laughs> begin contemplating their aggregates. So there's body there, there's body here. There's Vedana there, there's Vedana here, there's perceptions there, there's perceptions here. There's all the different kinds of mental formations there, there's all the kinds of mental formations here. There's knowing there, consciousnesses, and there's consciousnesses here. And 
what was held in place by this perception of separation begins to see, you begin to see it's the same it's the same i've got this you've got this we both have it so sometimes it's almost like we put um and what they're called, like a jack, you know, those those things, in, in between, and, and we make separation even more because we focus on what per, what makes us perceive separation. So we actually need to focus on what uh, brings a sense of commonality. Let's take this a little bit further. Um, Shantideva, one of the great, uh, great Mahayana teachers, I think the 8th, 8th or 9th century, If a brutal person wields a stick and goes round beating people with it, should I get angry with the stick? Of course not. The stick had no choice in the matter. He goes on to say, disregarding the stick, etc. If I become angry with the one who impels it, the one who wields a stick, then it is better if I hate hatred, because that person is also impelled by hatred. Do you understand? So it's this sense of when we look, when we do the anatta practice, and you look inside, it's almost like someone was saying in an interview today. It's like bits floating loose, you know, a bit of this and a bit of that, just floating loose. And you see, um, we see uh, intentions and thoughts and mind states and uh, all, all as anatta, not me, not mine. And we can transfer that seeing to another. See, what's, what's actually running the show in that moment for the other person is hatred. Is a mind state of hatred, is the intentions of hatred. And get, you could say, okay, so I'll hate that. Now, again, uh, not to go, or rather to take this in context, and all of this is about ways of looking that we pick up and we put down. So, at another time, it's totally appropriate to... Uh, Say to someone, you need to take responsibility for what you've what you're doing. You need you need to bring the self, the language of the self, and that kind of sense of here's a self, and the self is responsible. But when we're caught and stuck in the suffering, in the judgment, in the blaming, in the guilt of ourself or another, then then we can use the um, the way of seeing of, of anatta to loosen that. You understand? So it, it, it always, as I said in one of the early talks, the, the, the deciding factor is what's going to release the suffering here? What's going to release the suffering? A state of judging, of me judging another, is a state of suffering for me. There's no question about it. So it's totally a state of suffering. So we're interested in, in this malleability of ways of looking, and what's a skillful, um, helpful way of looking at any time? So men, many of you have probably done meta practice uh, actually over over years. It's uh, probably been a little bit something you pick up and put down, or, or do relatively continuously over a while. And have you noticed when you do meta practice? how easily, how fluidly a person can uh, m- move between categories. So one day they're your friend, and the next day they're, uh, they're down there in the difficult category. They've done, you know, they've put their foot in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they get, you know, they get sent uh, down there. And then the difficult person, can, you can make it up, and they get, uh, you know, they get promoted, whatever. To, um, it's all 
totally fluid and totally malleable. People change, or rather our perceptions of people change. Even more than that, have you seen, have we seen how much we assess others dependent on our past conditioning and dependent on our experiences and even more so depending on our sense of whether we benefit from them or not. That, that oftentimes, you know, what a person does to us is, is uh, again, the, the way the self is impacted ends up being how we assess them in the totality of what might be their life or the totality of the universe. The self-sense ends up being, in a way, disproportionately significant in our perception of another. Or we just have a certain um, feeling for someone, an opinion... Uh, and kind of support them in a difficulty or, or an argument with another person just because we're identified with them. We just take their side. It's all kind of just conditioning and, and self-identification. But the more important point is, again, the how someone appears to me depends on what? Depends on this. Depends on my heart and my mind. Uh, this is what we're getting at over and over in this retreat. How someone, in this case a person, appears depends on my heart and my mind and the state of my heart and my mind. So we need to see that over and over and see it also in the context of um, you know, difficult relationships, partnership or parent or whatever it is. Have, have you seen this? Have, have the, the, perce- the actual perception of even a partner can change, and it changes depending on the heart state, depending on the mind state. So if that's the case, and it is the case, if that's the case, it means, again, that in a sense they are empty. And if they're empty, and if it's malleable, why not just view them as a friend? Why not just incline the seeing that way? The more sense we have, the more deeply we've seen the emptiness and the dependent arising of how they seem, the more able we are to to not get so locked into a certain view. And then it's malleable, and we can change it. And to view someone as a friend uh, becomes a really possible choice for us, and it's a choice that brings happiness, that will bring happiness. The view is malleable. The view is malleable. Over and over we see that. The view is malleable. And in a way, because of that, you can also say in a kind of way, the person is not separate from my heart. I only know the person in terms of my perception of them and my sense of them. And they're not separate from the way I'm viewing them. Now, some people will hear that and they'll think, that sounds pretty naive, that sounds pretty... Pollyanna-ish, um, but actually, I would say, to believe in the inherent existence of a person being a certain way is actually the naive one, in terms of Dharma understanding. That's what's naive. You really think a person is like this or like that. That's naive. So there's there's, some, there's something in here, and, and it has it has a lot of, of implications. It has massive implications. The view, the sense of another, depends on on the heart and the mind, the citta. But the view and the sense of the world, the world that we are inhabiting at any moment, also depends on the heart and the mind. So, 
What a huge range of worlds a human being can occupy. What a huge... Same world, shared world, shared world. What a huge range. So we can, because of the state of the heart and the mind, this world can become a living nightmare. And at the same time, it, it can become a, a, a heavenly uh, field of, of uh, you know, deva realm. So this is really important. It has to do with karma. It has to do with karma. And I just want to say a little bit about karma. Karma is a very difficult subject and uh, very, very complex. And it's actually said that only Buddhas can really fully understand karma. But we want to notice, and I think, I think this is really, really important to notice, that when we act with generosity when we act out of kindness, when those qualities are in our heart, we live in a certain world. We feel the world a certain way. We experience a certain kind of world when there's compassion, when, there's, uh, when the heart is open in generosity and metta. You understand? That world that we're in then is one usually of openness, softness, brightness, warmth. Do, do you see that? This needs to be really, really clear, because there's something, again, very deep here about karma, about emptiness, about dependent arising. We make our world to a large degree, to a large degree. We make our world. So if I live in, if I have qualities in my heart of stinginess, self-centeredness, irritability, judgmentalism, irritation, agitation, anger... What kind of world do I live in in that moment? One of the lovely things about meditation retreats, you go through so many mind states, you actually see this. You can see it as you go into the lunch hall, how different things as you go onto the front lawn. It's a different world, same world, different world. So again, going back to what we said about dualities, how we can prime the perception in a certain way, and that's part of making our world. We prime our perception by this believing in one pole of, of, of a duality. So when there's acquisition and wanting to acquire for the self, when there's self-centeredness, etc., it again, it primes the perception towards separation, towards fear, towards anxiety, towards coldness, towards uh, all that. It takes a lot of sensitivity to see that and a lot of kind of subtlety of mind, but if you begin if we begin paying attention to it, you begin to really see there's something very, very clear there. Very clear. That's really, really important. So again, in terms of these dualities and how we prime the perception, when there is possessiveness around, which is, you know, again, very much part of the human condition, to the degree that there's possessiveness in the heart there will be fear, either in that moment or on its tails, on its, uh, right on its coattails. Possessiveness breeds fear. I'm going to be afraid of losing what I have. And we can have that sense of possessiveness in relationship to anything. That's interesting, even something so basic like, um, like the life force itself. So we tend to think, I, I somehow own this life force. Actually, it's part of nature. I don't own it. It's going to go when it goes. So, 
what we have in the heart, the qualities that we have in the heart, and the movements of the heart are a kind of mental karma. Okay, they're a kind of mental action. They're not neutral. They're actually a kind of doing, and we're always doing one thing or another, and they're, they're shaping the world we are born into in the next moment or the next whenever. Does that make sense? So you begin to see how karma and dependent arising and emptiness are not different things. They're actually one thing. I sh- the mind shapes all this, and it's all part of one thing called karma. Or call it karma, call it emptiness, call it dependent arising. Does that make sense? No? Yes? So it's it's not absolutely not the case that um, emptiness leads to this, or an understanding of emptiness and dependent rising leads to this kind of uh, nothing matters, ethics don't matter, it doesn't matter how I behave, it doesn't matter if I have love or not, it doesn't matter if I'm generous or not. It's quite the opposite. Karma and emptiness, karma and dependent rising are like two sides of the same coin. <clears throat> now, the other day I talked about... Um, take this a little bit further, I talked about this fading and um, this possibility sometimes when we either contemplate the emptiness of something or let go of clinging in relationship to that phenomena, there can be, at times, if it goes deep enough, there can be this kind of fading of the phenomena, blurring or fading. And just to say, like last night's talk and the talk on the chariot, etc., a lot of reasoning stuff and not uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea and not it's actually hard to follow and hard hard to grasp and I'm quite aware of that it's said in i think it's in the prasangika uh, sort of stream uh, system that dependent arising is what's called the king of reasonings it's the king of reasonings meaning that if we can understand the dependent aris- ar- arising of things of phenomena it kind of trumps, it's better than understanding all those logical reasonings that Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti came up with. Different people are different, and I really want to stress that over and over. So some people will really be using the logic and using it, other people won't. But there's something I think, if, if that fading piece, if you can find your way into it, it's extremely powerful, and extremely, uh, it's kind of one of the clearest and deepest ways into understanding emptiness. It's not for everyone, but uh, it can be. And right there, it like avoids the um, extremes of nihilism or reification. You, you understand, what does it mean for something not to be inherently existent? Oh, it depends, it depends. The people are different. As I go back to the opening talk, we talked about this pizza and people nibbling from different edges around the circumference, and that's fine. But it would be quite possible, for instance, to understand dependent arising through this phenomena of fading, and still to hear some of these logical reasonings from Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti, these huge, brilliant intellects, and um, not actually need those reasonings because you've penetrated it through the dependent arising. You've penetrated it through seeing the fading. So someone, I was thinking I was reading, a scholar was analysing uh, the Mula Madhyamaka Karaka from Nagarjuna and said, if I remember, there are between 80 and 100 separate logical reasonings in there about emptiness in the book. So it's, it's dense with these really complicated logical arguments. Do I need to understand every piece of logic in there to realise? No, I don't. 
Uh, and some of it, it might be that you don't even follow the logic, or that you follow it, but it's not quite convincing to you. But the piece about fading, uh, to me, it, it, it's not for everyone, but to me it's quite simple, and uh, goes very, very deep. Okay. There's something about this. Oftentimes we are sitting in meditation or walking or just having a cup of tea or whatever and minding our own business and then it feels like a storm comes up. Something moves through the being. Stuff is coming up. Okay, uh, and the, the, the energetic systems get agitated or some big pain or something or, or a boom. Something comes up and it's difficult and it's painful and it feels like feels like and uh, some some stuff is coming up that's the, the language that we use nowadays stuff is coming about something uh, from from the past some injury some sense of hurt some trauma is being released into consciousness through the psychophysical system through the body through the mind and it's it's there and it's difficult and as practitioners again we can learn how to accommodate that kind of difficulty. We can learn how to be with it. And so again, I'm kind of taking it as a given that you know how to do that, that we know how to do that. Something difficult is coming up into consciousness, seemingly out of the blue. Can I hold it? Do I know how to hold it? Do I know how to be with it? Do I know how to meet it simply and nakedly and with kindness? Really, really important. So I'm kind of assuming that, but if we go a step further. And again, what do we see here? If we practice letting go of clinging, and it's just moment to moment letting go of clinging, or moment to moment letting go of identification, anatta, not me, not mine, what do we notice in the unfolding of experience? What we notice, for the most part, is that there is a dying down, a decrease of difficult experiences coming up. With the letting go of the clinging, with the letting go of the identification, the general um, inner space is actually more spacious, less difficult, less problematic. And if I keep doing that, just letting go of clinging, just letting go of identification, actually less stuff arises at all. And what arises is less substantial. And I keep doing it, and it's less. And I keep doing it, and it's less. Until almost nothing is coming up at all. Almost nothing is coming up at all. And eventually, nothing comes up at all. (coughs) This has big, big implications about how we view the healing process. And how we, for instance, uh, might view... Uh, an idea of purification. Okay, there's massive implications about this. If I have the um, notion that uh, I can kind of sit here in meditation or be in my life and things can come up and out, up from a sort of reservoir, a store uh, in in the psyche or lodged in the body somehow in the energetic system and they can be released and come out uh, usually, usually, uh, what comes out to be regarded as a purification needs to be a little bit difficult or a lot difficult. And we tend to have this sense of when it's really difficult, that was a big piece, that was a big chunk, big chunk of something being released, big chunk of something coming up and out. How does this square with the 
with our experience though here, if I'm just sitting and just letting go of clinging and just not identifying, that process happens less and less to the degree that I let go of clinging. Yeah? And again, then if you add to that the sense that actually if you think about what is it to let go of clinging, it's not a doing, it's a non-doing. I'm not do I'm actually stopping doing what I usually do, which is I usually push and pull and cling. I'm actually stopping doing that. So I can't point to anything in in the meditation and say, yeah, well that stuff's not coming up because I'm blocking it or because I'm doing this other funny weird stuff which is preventing it. I'm just letting go of identification and not clinging. And again, if we say that letting go of identification is actually more of a true vantage point, kind of relatively speaking, it's a deeper and more true, dharmically speaking, vantage point. Do you understand what I'm getting at here? And again, that question which I keep throwing out in different circumstances, how much clinging, how much self reveals the real... um, piece of purification or the real emotion that needs to arise or the real you know knot that I need to feel in my energetic bodily system how much again it's going to be a spectrum if, if there's a lot of self a lot of clinging what comes out will be very knotted very difficult etc little less little less a lot less a lot less etc less and less how much is the real one what's really there inside needing to come come up wait, waiting to come up this is this is a really um, because a lot of us uh, tend to think in this way about purification and and he- and the healing process. So I, I don't want to land anywhere yet with this. I'm just I'm just exploring something still. What the Buddha says about the arising of experience is that it needs past conditions and present conditions, and they come together kind of like this. So there's uh, the momentum of conditions from the past and the momentum, or rather what we're putting in, what the mind is putting in in the present. And together they make together they make what we then experience as the present experience, the present moment of experience. So what am I putting in in the moment is something that I can actually play with, and that's partly what we're doing on this retreat. We're learning to play with what we're putting in in the present moment. And what I see is, if I don't put in clinging, if I don't put in uh, identification, nothing difficult comes up, or less and less difficult, then nothing difficult, then less and less substantial, then nothing much at all, and then nothing. Is is it true that anything inherently existing in itself is is kind of waiting there or stored there to come up? So we could go even a little notch further or deeper and say the very belief, the very belief that there is something stored there that needs purification, that needs to come up, there is stuff inside somewhere that wants to come up, that very belief is also a kind of mental karma, a kind of mental action. The very belief at a subtle but very, very powerful level will influence what happens. And so you find that to the degree that I believe in that process and that the, the actuality of that is the degree that it happens. You know, I for one have spent years, years and years, you know, with the you know, willingness to go through really, really heavy storms and, and emotions and a lot of catharsis, um, but in a way partly propelled just by the view, 
just by the view, because it's not a neutral thing. So are we, can we see the place of dependent arising and understanding all this? It's really, really crucial, because that purification process and that healing process could quite easily be never-ending, never-ending. And I know people, decades and decades and decades and decades, 30, 40 years of being dedicated to this, of seeing it that way, having, having the feelings come up, releasing, you know, there's a lot of uh, beautiful commitment and open-heartedness that gets developed there as well. But is it an actually ultimately true process? It can be never-ending. And if you believe in future lives, etc., boy, I mean... Uh, <laughs> It will be never-ending if I don't see what's going on, if I don't understand what's going on, and if unconsciously, in the present moment, uh, I'm creating it by the subtle view and the subtle input into the present moment through clinging or through identification. If I don't know that, if that's unconsciously going on, even if I think I'm just being mindful, I'm just being with, I'm just being, etc., um, that stuff, uh, the, the, the subtle levels of clinging and identification, can be going on even when we think we're just being mindful. And that's partly why we're doing these particular practices, actually to highlight subtle things that are going on in the mind that we don't usually even notice are going on. So oftentimes... You know, we can talk about a passive kind of uh, mindfulness and a passive kind of insight, and that really does have its place, and it never, again, it never loses it. But that believing that there, that when we are being with or just being, believing that's just being is is an illusion. In a way, there's no such thing as just being. The mind is always putting something into the present moment. If it really, we'll talk about this later in the retreat, but if it really, really, really doesn't put anything into the present moment, the present moment actually doesn't arise in consciousness. One moves beyond the conventional world of time and subject and object. So the mind is always putting things on, uh, putting things in. The, the notion of just being uh, is a bit of a red herring, is that the right word? Red herring. So there's always a view, and that's putting something in. There's always a subtle kind of doing. And so as such, the mindfulness process, the being with process, is actually always active. Now, I think both views are helpful. Both views are helpful. In other words, it can be helpful at times to have this sense of things being stored and needing to come up and releasing it. It can be helpful. Uh, and as... But are we stuck in that and locked in that unconsciously? Uh, that that will be a problem. But it can be, again, that we pick up a view and put it down, and pick up the opposite view and put that down. Mm. So it's interesting, you know, healing, emotional healing in particular, but all kinds of healing, not always, but often... There's a, there is a level of drama involved in healing, and guess who's the star of that drama? <laughs> guess who's at center stage? It's me. Me. <laughs> it's a me. Healing often is a kind of me drama. And sometimes, that's why it's like we get a bit addicted. Just a little bit of faith brought this up at some point. We get a bit addicted to this me drama. 
And it's nice if the me drama can be in the context of a healing story and a process and what feels... But just to be aware that we get um, drawn to that and, and addicted, attached to it, and addicted and attracted to it. And the view of emptiness, coming at it from the, from the angle of emptiness and dependent rising, it kind of just a little bit lets go of all that drama and the me being at the center of it all. Again, I don't want to land anywhere. It's important to shine the light on this stuff and kind of expose it. Where where have I been clinging to a view, consciously or unconsciously, and is that really a reality? And what I would, where I would actually land is in a more open place and say, as a practitioner, as a human being, am I able to do both? In other words, do I have I developed the ability to be with difficult emotions, be with difficult storms and difficult energy things happening in the body, that I'm, as I said, actually able and uh, not afraid to be with and meet and hold, that I know how to do that. I'm able to and unafraid. And am I able to and unafraid of doing the opposite? Seeing it as a dependent rising and seeing it, if I don't feed it, it will just, it will just collapse right there, it just won't arise. Now that can bring a different kind of fear up. Fear of losing one's identity, fear of all kinds of stuff. Um, but am I able to do both? Do I have what, really the skill to do both? Not easy, not easy, but absolutely possible to develop. Am I able to do both, and am I fearless enough to do both? And then it's a matter of really of honesty and integrity, and, and really seeing what's true, what needs working with, what needs actually just seeing through. The both are um, being willing to be with what comes up and see it as something that needs to come up, mm-hmm. and also the kind of opposite, seeing it as it's just something that's dependently arising in this moment, dependent on how I'm viewing it and feeding it. And if I don't do that, it's actually empty. Mm-hmm. So seeing both its substantiality and the need to be with it, and also its emptiness, mm-hmm. and and to have the freedom to do both and the skill to do both. That's you know that's something very very powerful to have as a human being, you know. So if we want to return for a little bit to karma, and it's something um, one of my teachers, Ajahn Jeff, said once, he said, you know, awakening, if we talk about awakening, it's not just a, like a mind-blowingly fantastic experience. It's not just the big wow. <laughs> and to quote the Buddha, he said, the Buddha said, First there is the knowing of dependent co-arising, then the knowing of Nibbāna, then the knowing of Nirvana. So in other words, there's no Nirvana without knowing dependent co-arising. So let's explore this a little bit. If I am in a tantrum, if that's the mind state, uh, the heart state, if there's anger, if there's greed, if there's selfing, if there's agitation, what I see is those qualities of the heart are builders of the self-sense and builders of a thing-sense in things. They're builders of the world. The more the more tantrum, anger, selfing, agitation, uh, greed, etc. I have, the more the self-sense is built, solid, prominent, and the more the world-sense, the thing of the world is. And in those states, I have less clarity. I have less clarity. So they're also foggers of my clarity. Love, compassion, generosity, samadhi, equanimity, all these um, 
the most boring sounding list, they they are actually non-builders, or rather less, they build less. So when there is um, love, compassion, generosity, samadhi, equanimity, the self is built less, and the world is built less. The thingness of things is built less through those qualities. And they bring clarity with them, love, compassion, samadhi, equanimity, etc., generosity, they bring clarity with them, and also, they are less built. So they both build less, but they're also less built. In other words, it takes quite a lot of effort to be in a tantrum. It, take, it takes a lot of what you've got to inject, a lot of energy. You've got to really kind of, you've got to be up for it. <laughs> you need to, it, it takes a lot of effort to be angry at someone. Sometimes it seems like that's the natural thing, but that's just because our habit streams are flowing that way. Actually, in terms of the input, it takes a lot takes a lot to build up a state of anger. A state of love, a state of samadhi, a state of compassion, equanimity, etc., are less built. At first, because they're not normal habits to us, it feels like, oh, I'm really trying to build the samadhi, I'm really trying to build the metta, and I'm sort of flapping away, you know, furiously trying to get this little bit of metta or samadhi going. But actually, they're less built. In other words, they take less. It take, takes a a lot of doing metta and samadhi to actually realize that. But they're more, you could say, they're more n- the natural state of things. They're less fabricated. So there's something about this. Nibbana, nirvana, comes from understanding dependent arising, which means understanding this building process, understanding the way that things get built. And you could say completely understanding that, completely seeing how things are built. And the development of beautiful qualities, the nourishing of beautiful qualities, actually allows that seeing for all these reasons that I've just said, because they're less built and they build less and they're more clear. And eventually we can actually learn to build nothing. Learn to build nothing. But it's the understanding that's important. So there's something really about understanding here. So wrapped up in all that implicitly, is the fact that awakening, nirvana, necessarily, necessarily involves understanding, a a lived understanding of ethics. It necessarily involves also an understanding of of kind of causality, um, insight into causality in the heart and the mind. Do you see how that, it's all part of the same package. So we might have, or a person might have, or someone might come to you and say, this person had this mind-blowingly, you know, expansive experience. Unless that's there, from the from the Buddha Dharma point of view, it's not awakening. Unless this understanding of dependent arising and karma and how ethics is actually totally woven up into it, how care and love are totally woven into it, it's not the same thing. How are you guys guys doing? You okay? Yeah. Okay. This isn't a meta or compassion retreat, but I just want to talk again, just to throw out some some sense of possibility that you might pick up at some point in your life of practice. Really, when when one engages in compassion practice, a kind of in a more um, more you know long term way, uh, it it actually deepens naturally. It deepens, you know, and it goes through stages. 
So the Buddha talks about three kinds of dukkha, three kinds of suffering. So one kind is what's called dukkha dukkha. It means the suffering of just things being painful. So I hurt my body, I have an illness, I have a relationship breakdown, I have this or that, um, uh, a, a difficult mind state. It's, it's dukkha, the dukkha of what's difficult. The second kind of dukkha is anicca dukkha. It's the dukkha of even lovely things being impermanent. We're all subject to that. So you might have happiness, you might have a lovely relationship, you might have uh, whatever it is, but it's impermanent. And there's a kind of level of dukkha that comes from that. Just the fact that things are impermanent. And then the last one is called sankhara dukkha. And this is interesting because different people interpret it different ways. But the way I'd like to interpret it is, is actually, it's the dukkha that comes from always building things, always building, building experience, building the world, building the self, building, building, fabricating, and not knowing that things are fabricated. Not knowing that. Let me read you something from, actually from Chandrakirti, the, the champion of the chariot. Um, he starts that text, the Madhyamakavatara, um, that talks about chariot and lots of really detailed stuff about emptiness. He starts it um, by uh, saying, compassion non-dual understanding, in other words, understanding of emptiness, and the altruistic wish for awakening are the causes of bodhisattvas. And then he says, mercy or compassion. Mercy is seen as the seed of an awakened one's rich harvest. Compassion is the seed of everything that uh, an awakened one reaps. As water for development, in other words, it's there... Uh, right all, all the way along the path, water for development, and as ripening in a state of lasting happiness. So the, the ripening, too, is, is compassion. Therefore, at the start, at the start of this massive, you know, really clever treatise, you know, therefore, at the start, I praise compassion. He goes on, beings think I first. Beings think I of themselves at first and cling to self. They think mine and are attached to things. They thus turn helplessly as buckets in a well, like one of those buckets that's on a thing that you wind it up in a well, it's just clanking around, and banging here and there. They thus turn helplessly as buckets. And to compassion for such beings I bow down. So right at the beginning of this very um, intellectual, brilliant treatise on emptiness, he says, it's all about compassion. I bow down. And he goes on, beings are like the moon in rippling water fitful, fleeting, impermanent, and they are empty in their nature. Bodhisattvas see them thus and yearn to set them free. Their wisdom is beneath compassion's power. In other words, all this wisdom that we're developing, all this understanding, compassion stands above it and pulls the strings. That's what's in charge here, compassion. So wrapped up in what he's saying is he's pointing to three kinds of levels of practicing compassion practice. I just want to throw this out as a possibility again that some of you will pick up, or maybe some of you will pick up sometime. The first one is, is what, what we tend to think of as obvious compassion. We see, we hear about someone in the news or a friend who's going through something difficult. There's suffering there, and it's compassion towards that suffering, compassion to suffering beings. The second one is towards beings qualified by impermanence. So what that means is, 
actually in the compassion practice, um, having at the same time contemplating someone's impermanence. So this could be, I can't see any obvious suffering right now, or maybe I can in what you're going through, but I'm aware you're, you're dying. I'm aware you are, however healthy you are right now, however young you are, you're basically dying. And I'm aware of your death. And something about the mortality and the fragility of human life is sort of sitting at the back of the compassion practice and feeding it, nourishing it. It could also be tuned into a much finer level of impermanence, a much more rapid level of impermanence. <clears throat> and what we see is, when I really look at my experience of suffering, what I, what, what I actually experience is there are kind of mind moments of suffering. So I tend to think this self, etc. When I really go into my experience, I have a mind moment, and then another mind moment, and then another mind moment, like a perception of something. All the aggregates together, making a mind moment. Does that make sense? There's a mind moment. Um, and it, there's a way you can kind of direct the compassion towards ownerless mind moments. So it's just my, Rather than towards a self, towards mind moments. Why would you do that? Uh, because sometimes it can bring a, a, a much deeper sense of the compassion. So they're just mind moments that are... Second one, still. Second one. And I didn't quite follow that. Um, sometimes, Sorry. if there's enough samadhi or stillness in the being, sometimes you look inside, and instead of a sense of self... Actually, thank you, because it needed to be drawn out more. Um, instead of a sense of self, the usual solid, kind of packed-together sense of self we have... What you, what you notice is a sort of a mind moment, and then another mind moment. And in that mind moment is your perception of experience and everything. It's like a moment of experience. And, mm -hmm. and instead of kind of seeing a self, what you see is mind moments that seem to have... It's less about... Uh, they, they don't seem to have so much of an owner. Okay? And you see that in the other person. Yes, and then you reflect on another person like that. And so it's compassion to the ownerless mind. Now, you can also do it to yourself, uh -huh. definitely, but you can, and it's probably easier to start with yourself, mm -hmm. but you can also do that to another person. It's just ownerless mind moments. It's a very, very beautiful uh, way of practicing compassion. So what about the third one, the third way, which is in, in what Chandrakiri says, beings qualified by emptiness. Uh, so yesterday we talked about the body being actually um, permeable and without real boundary and sort of um, not separate from the rest of the universe. So here I am to give compassion to uh, a friend. And I'm in, in the compassion actually reflecting on their body not being separate, the air going in and out, and when does it become them? Seeing the non-separateness of their body from the universe. And the non-separateness of all the four mental aggregates from the universe. So, you can't have Vedana, perceptions, consciousness, etc., without an outer world to perceive. In other words, every time I perceive something, I need all this to perceive. Do you understand? My mind can't be separate from all this. So, in a way, I'm giving compassion to my friend, their body is not separate, their mind also is not separate from the rest of the universe. You see, and as I briefly touched upon last time, it's also they're inseparable from the past and future because of the way the, the clinging works and conditions the next moment. So there's a sense of a person being a separate being, and you can go into it in a way and bring in the emptiness contemplation. You see, there's nothing there of this dear friend, perhaps uh, that I know so well, that I can see as separate. And there's a kind of it's almost like the person is infinite. Their, na their actual nature is infinite. They're, you could say they're full of the universe. 
They're unfindable as a separate thing. And surprisingly, perhaps, that can actually open up a whole other level of love. So again, mm. we would tend to think, well, no me, no you, how's, how's that going to be, how's there going to be any love there? But actually, opens it up even more. It's, it's starting with interdependence and going even deeper to, to a kind of uh, r- real radical non-separation. Yeah, unfindability as something separate. So the emptiness brings a kind of heart melting with it. Still okay? Sure. Okay. It should, I hope it would be obvious how emptiness helps equanimity. Emptiness and equanimity should be relatively obvious how they would go hand in hand. But let's think about this equanimity in the context of compassion, particularly. So we want to be of service. When there's compassion in the heart, we want to help. We want to alleviate suffering. And it's important that with that there's equanimity. So let's think about actions and the effects of actions. Um, Obviously, the effects of actions depend on the action. I go and I say something or I do something to help, and the effect obviously depends on the action. That's the normal way of thinking. But actually, actions depend on their effects as well. Because without the effects, how do you perceive something as an action? An action to be an action must have some noticeable effect. I can't have one without the other. When I look more at actions, actions of helping, etc., actually they're not separate from their causes either. The heart state, the intentionality, that's not separate from the action. The aggregates of the mind, perception, etc., in a similar way to what we just talked about, are not separate from the action. The perceiving, the intention, all that. Where does that stop and start and the, and the action begin? They're both cause and effect for each other. It's totally, uh, again, an inseparable thing. When we think about the, you know, wanting to serve, wanting to help, wanting to alleviate suffering, and this is quite important, seeing that we make an action, it's almost like, it's not a good example, but um, the, the, the effects are unknown to us. Now, sometimes they're completely visible, but actually you drop something in and ripples start moving out and those ripples meet other ripples so you know as a teacher i might say something or this retreat you say something about emptiness or you say something in a way it's planting a seed perhaps or some of this as we said planting seeds causing ripples some some condition starts rippling and meets other conditions you read something else or you hear something else or something happens and and some so the effects of an action that's intended to be of service are actually in a way, again, they're infinite and they're unknowable. There's something about that, realizing the conditionality, that helps feel overly responsible, and overly like it all depends on me. I mean, just in a very mundane way, to, to judge effects too quickly, it's like I might be going, like in meditation, I might be going through something very difficult and painful, but if that negativity and difficulty, if what comes out of that in response to that is courage, willingness, openness, mindfulness, curiosity, letting go, investigation, then what felt like a difficult something actually has, uh, has you know, become very positive. And vice versa, it could be, 
I'm sure this doesn't happen to any of you, but it could be that one is experiencing, you know, a lovely time in meditation, and one a little bit lets things go, and just doesn't kind of gets a little um, what's the word uh, complacent, sloppy, and then what's actually coming out or grasps at a state of pleasantness or something. What's actually coming out of something that seems lovely is not so lovely, just on a kind of mundane level. The last thing. Compassion, if we, if we want to be of service in the world, if we want to dedicate ourselves to that and, and the allowing the heart to really open in that, compassion needs equanimity. And the thing that brings the deepest equanimity is emptiness. It's, it's uh, totally the most powerful thing for bringing equanimity. Compassion needs the equanimity that comes from emptiness, from seeing emptiness. So love, service, generosity, selflessness... All of those are much more possible, much more possible in our life uh, when there's this uh, realization, understanding of emptiness. To the degree that there's an understanding of emptiness, all those become so much more possible, so much more accessible in the being. In the Mahayana tradition they talk about uh, two kinds of bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. Ultimate bodhicitta is actually the mind uh, seeing emptiness. The mind seeing emptiness is ultimate bodhicitta. Relative bodhicitta is the aspiration to, um, let's be loose, to uh, um, really completely dedicate one's practice and one's uh, awakening to the service of all beings, for the, for the awakening of all beings. But ultimate bodhicitta, the seeing of emptiness, is what allows the fullness of the relative bodhicitta. You think about it, there's bodhisattvas you know, pledging to be in the world for eons. If you see that time is empty, that, it loosens what that means. If you see that the self is empty, it opens up what that means. If you see that suffering is also empty, it opens it up. And again, instead of feeling like a burden, it's something that's much more open. So, Again, the emptiness, it allows the, the fullness of, of dedication to love, the fullness of giving. It really opens up those channels, opens up that capacity in the being. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, let's have a minute of silence together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.